0: I'd like to quote a great theologian this time. His name's Michael Harden.
1: (laughs) Hi, my name is Ulf, and you're listening to Beyond the Podcast.
0: I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond Beyond the the box. Box. Welcome back, everybody, to Beyond the Box. We're glad to have you back with us today. Today we are joined once again on the podcast by Michael Harden, who I have just become uh, good friends with, just appreciate his heart. I think Michael is just such a cool guy and talking to him offline and both on the podcast. Uh, Michael, just thank you so much for your time that you've taken to do this with us um for just the investment that you've made in our podcast and in the lives of other people. We just really appreciate you, man. And uh shout out to you down there in Australia while you're down there um taking the message of Jesus. We just appreciate what you're doing, dude. Um anyway today we're going to be talking about a really interesting subject in the book of Revelation. Many of you have asked what do you guys think about Revelation? What do you think about end times? And you know, a lot of this I've been processing in the light of what I've come to believe about God and nonviolence and the atonement as being nonviolent and um, hell and uh, ultimate reconciliation and all of these things. I've had to really kind of um, seek equilibrium after having a lot of my own personal beliefs upended over the last few years by the message of Jesus as being one of love. So this is yet another attempt to try and process another part of our understanding of God and of theology in light of the love of Jesus and the call of Jesus to nonviolence and enemy love. So um, we're talking today about a book that Michael helped edit entitled Compassionate Eschatology. It's a lot like Stricken by God in that it's a lot of contributions from a lot of different authors where they've written articles surrounding the topic of Revelation. So it actually came out of one of um, Preaching Peace, which is Michael and Lori Harden's ministry, one of Preaching Peace's conference entitled Compassionate Eschatology. So we're going to talk today about understanding the book of revelation and understanding the end times and trying to trying to fit that all together in the light of God who is love and of Jesus who has called us to love our enemies and to live nonviolently in a violent world. So I hope you enjoy this today and without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Michael Harden. We are so excited to have Michael Harden I would say again, but it's really again, again, Michael, because, <laughs> because we just had about 20 minutes worth of conversation that I totally botched up and didn't record. So I have to say, all this grace and forgiveness stuff that Michael's preaching, he's actually living it, because right now I just totally wasted 20 minutes of his time. <laughs>
1: that's sorry, That's 20 minutes in hell that you get to spend. And then you get to go to- that's
0: an extra 20. Let's see, 20 minutes, that would equal, what, two years in purgatory or something yeah, like, that. like
1: that? <laughs>
0: Oh, man, I hope God's more merciful than that, Michael. I'm in real Amen. trouble. <laughs> Today, we are really, I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation have been for some time. Um, Michael edited, co-edited a book with a man named Tim Grimsrud, is that how you say Ted, it? Ted, Ted Grimsrud. Ted Grimsrud, um, entitled Compassionate Eschatology, which is just a great, um, it's a great, Overview of the book of Revelation and kind of a re understanding of the book of Revelation, especially in light of our traditional, I guess, uh, predominantly American way of understanding Revelation. Um, Michael, you, you said that this book actually came out of a conference that you guys did?
1: Yeah, we, a Preaching Peace, as you know, um, creates curriculum for seminaries and churches. And so we produce major conferences on topics that are. Relevant to Rene Girard's mimetic theory and how to read the Bible. And so, of course, Stricken by God, um, we had the Nonviolent Atonement Conference, and then Brad Jerzak invited me to edit uh, that book with him, and we put some of the essays from that conference in Stricken. And uh, the Peace Be With You book that I co edited with Sharon Baker that you've had on the podcast came out of our uh, Constantinian, uh, the, the Church at Peace in a World at War conference uh, in 2008, and then Compassion Eschatology came out of a conference of the same title in 2008 at the San Francisco Theological Seminary, and we invited a host of other authors to make original contributions to the book.
0: Well, I tell you, the book is is wonderful. If you guys get a chance to read it, you got to go pick this up, Compassionate Eschatology. If you have grown up in, especially in evangelical conservatism, dispensationalism, premillennialism, this book will really, uh, it's going to really rock your world, and it's really going to give you a lot of food for thought.
1: Um, It will will rupture the rapture.
0: It will rupture the rapture (laughs) by far. (laughs) And just that whole, you know, Michael, that whole escapist mentality that says, let's let the world go to hell in a handbasket while we go party with Jesus. You know, that's always been kind of problematic. I know where all of this began to kind of deconstruct for me was several years ago when I really got a hold of the whole idea of nonviolence and the idea that Jesus was nonviolent. And therefore, Mm -hmm. as his disciple, I was to walk in that nonviolence. And as I told you before, that really deconstructed the atonement for me. It deconstructed hell for me Mm -hmm. and has really been lately, especially deconstructing the book of Revelation and understanding the end times for me, because one of the splinters in my mind, as I like to say, for a while has been if Jesus is nonviolent 2,000 years ago, and we believe that's that he's actually the uh, fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, that if we've seen Jesus, we've seen what the Father's like then what the heck is going on in the book of Revelation? Because it sure seems like there's a lot of violent imagery, a lot of, you know, uh, Jesus meets Rambo meets Commando. We're going to blow away the sinners. And, you know, as Jerry Falwell once said, we're going to blow them all to hell in the name of the Lord. that's That's right. There's a lot of that in there. And it seems really problematic when you're trying to reconcile these two different, very different visions of Jesus.
1: Well, there's a, there, let me recapitulate then uh, what we had um, said earlier that didn't get recorded. And, and the first is that the book of the Revelation has always been problematic in the history of the Church. Um, the early Church, of course, rejected it for the millenarian teaching found in Revelation 21. Um, it wasn't accepted by the Eastern Church in, in, in really until about the 10th century. Um, in fact, they still don't read it in their liturgy. Um, the... Um, It it has created serious conundrums uh, uh, throughout the history of the Church. Luther threw it out of the canon. Uh, Calvin comments on every book of the New Testament but Revelation. Hmm. Um, The Enlightenment, of course, scholars will look at the book of the Revelation and and see it as little more than some kind of um, retributive, vindictive fantasy. That uh, becomes popular in American circles in amongst the poor, where, it, of course, the Book of the Revelation originates historically amongst the poor and out, outcasts and disenfranchised uh, in the 19th century, in the prophecy movements of the late 19th century. It um, uh, becomes kind of a centerpiece of um, uh, Christian fundamentalism uh, with the rise of dispensationalism and C.I. Schofield. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, the rise of of institutions like Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, and these kinds of places, and has become, um, for all intents and purposes, um, standardized. This violent reading of Revelation become standardized in the Left Behind series, which, as I understand, is the most. Um, what's what's the phrase I'm looking for? It's the book. It, it's the it, the series of books that sold more than any other book ever. Well, which it's is, which at, is kind of sad.
0: At last count that I saw, I think it was. Around sixty or seventy million copies sold in that yeah, series, that, 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 which that's is,
1: absolutely insane. That's that's
0: mind-boggling to even think. It
1: is. <laughs> and and as Barbara Rossing puts it, um, not only are the characters fictitious, but the theology it's based upon is fictitious. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, but but the thing is, as I as I said before, um, you know, you've got even uh, uh, critics out there of the Book of the Revelation who who are going to criticize it precisely because they buy into this conservative, fundamentalist, dispensationalist reading as though it's the way to read the book. Mm -hmm. But in the last 25 years, the book of the Revelation has been contexted uh, in first century Jewish-Christian thought. And so there's this this whole new um, approach to Revelation that really reads it differently, that reads it um, as a document that is precisely about the problem of violence in empire and how um, uh, Jesus subverts that. And as I mentioned to you before, when what you asked me, how how is it that in Revelation 5, uh, the writer can expect the lion begets the lamb? And so we'll come back to this text often, I'm sure. But it's because all of this militant language is getting subverted. All this language of empire is getting subverted. Jesus started it with the parables and the kingdom of God. He subverts the notion of the kingdom of God in the parables His contemporaries understood kingdom of God a certain way. Jesus subverts that. Um, The Gospel of John is another example of subversive literature. The Gospel of John uses uh, what are called doppelganger, double-meaning words. And so the verb to exalt in the Gospel of John, which would normally mean to lift to, to the high heavens, now refers not to the greatest exaltation but to the greatest humiliation, when Jesus is exalted on the cross. Hmm. Wow. The writer to the Hebrews uses the language of sacrifice and subverts it in such a fashion that he's actually writing an anti-sacrificial treatise. But if you don't pay attention to this subversion, you don't see that the writers are in fact challenging everything that's been going on in terms of language. And they're, they're really they're really tackling the whole phenomenon of what happens when God is conceived as a violent, retributive deity. But the only way they can do it is to use that language. Because it's not like they can come out and say, oh, by the way, you know, uh, we went to seminary, and we just want to tell you you've kind of got God wrong here. No, they're using the language that people are, are used to and familiar with, but they're constantly turning it inside out, and the book of the Revelation does that.
0: That, that's one thing I was telling you earlier that really has hit me recently is that language, that I'm coming to the conclusion, Michael, that all language is simply symbolic, that there can be no such thing. It's almost like in because of our modernistic post-enlightenment lenses that we've inherited, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we think that only literal, that literal language is the highest form of communication, that it's the best sure. form, it's the dominant form. And in reality, when you really get to the heart of things, There is no such thing as even literal language, even though I know what people mean by that. um, Mm -hmm. And and I don't have a problem with that. But but the fact that language itself is symbolic. I mean, we're using symbols. We're using imagery to communicate things that Mm -hmm. don't exist in the world of vocabulary. And so that's something that's really um, been mind-boggling for me to really get a hold of, is this idea that the Bible, that when Jesus comes along and the early church comes along, they can't just create a whole new language. They're in a context with a people who already understand and have a certain worldview of how everything works. And so That's they right. adopt that. And from within it, like you say, within it, they're subverting it. And that has just been, that is totally changing the way I read the Bible, Michael. That's completely yeah. changing the way I read the Bible.
1: Well, it's, it's the character of scripture to critique religion. And if Christianity is a religion, um, the, Scripture is going to be uh, a major critique of that. Hmm. I, I, I had mentioned to you earlier, Rick Perry thinks that President Obama is, is anti-Christian and the biggest threat to Christianity. Uh, Rick Perry's wrong. The one that Rick Perry worships in church on Sunday, whose name is Jesus Christ, is the greatest threat to Christianity.
0: That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. You know, when you, when you start in this whole book of Revelation, as I went through the book... Um, and every author just had some really great contributions and really took me on all sorts of rabbit trails throughout the book of Revelation, which I really appreciated. I think the first two chapters really set the stage well, though, mm-hmm. with um, Ted Grimsrud and... Uh, Richard Balkum. Richard Balkum, thank you. Um, they really emphasized the idea of Revelation 5 as being the controlling metaphor, uh, mm-hmm. the, the metaphor of the Lamb through which we view the rest of Revelation. And in right. Revelation 5... Just to, for, for our listeners, that's basically where um, John is in heaven and he's asking who's worthy to open the seals and look at, mm-hmm. look inside mm-hmm. the seals and they look throughout the universe basically and no one no one's found and then an angel comforts him and says, "You know don't cry, we've found someone. It's mm-hmm. the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is he is conquered and he's able to open the scrolls and so John turns around expecting to see this conquering huge lion. And mm-hmm. instead, he sees a slaughtered lamb sitting on the throne. That's and, right. And their contention is that that metaphor, where John where John is expecting to see the lion and instead is met by the lamb, that that is the beginning of that, uh, that language being supplanted and, and subverted, so that you use that as the interpretive grid through which you view the rest of Revelation.
1: Well, precisely. And it's exactly the same thing Jesus does in his ministry. I mean, one thing that you know that, that's important is that Jesus does not accept the title Messiah, because mm. it's so loaded with militant baggage. And and Jesus' favorite title, of course, is Son of Man. Mm. That's his favorite self-designation, the true human. Um, he, um, I'm fairly convinced, rejects the notion of Messiah, particularly at the episode in Caesarea Philippi, because it is militant. And instead subverts it with this suffering-servant-son-of-man combination. Mm. Same thing is going on in Revelation 5. The writer expects someone to come and even the scales of justice in the universe, and he expects that this will be done in the same fashion as has always been done when someone evens the scales of injustice with power, with retributive force, with violence, with war. And what does he get, as you said? He gets this lamb with its throat cut, mm. this, wow. this crucified one. Wow. This one, this one who lived nonviolently, preached nonviolence, taught nonviolence, uh, forgave enemies. Um, yeah, that's who he gets.
0: What was interesting to me, too, with Revelation 5 is this idea, and I, I can't remember which author brought this out, but um, this idea that that's the last time, that the lion's ever mentioned in the entire book of Revelation, the first and last time, and that you never actually see the lion, but you continually see the lamb, not only in the Gospel of John, but all the way through the book of Revelation after chapter 5, you're continually met by the image of the lamb.
1: That's right. I mean, C.S. Lewis sort of gets this in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Aslan is a lion, um, it would have been much better had the lion morphed or changed into a lamb at the end, you know. Mm. But we still, mm. we still get the lion.
0: <laughs> We're still the, stuck with the lion. <laughs>
1: well, we are. We are. You know, and and um, Lewis is not the most consistent of thinkers, but um, but yeah, I yeah, you The said, writer of the Revelation does, in fact, make that shift, and and that yeah, that you, that is a, a controlling metaphor.
0: You said earlier. Um, I said something about the lion not residing in Jesus, which, you know, as you were even correcting that, I was thinking about reading in the book and remembering how one of the authors talked about how the vision, and you brought this out, how the vision of the lion was actually the the uh, fact of conquering the fact that yes. Jesus conquered and defeated yes. but the vision of the lamb was the how to was that's the how, how of what that's he That's
1: right how he conquers that's precisely right yeah
0: so the so that that vision of the lion gives us the idea that yes Jesus is a conqueror and he is a ruler and he's on a throne but it's the lamb is the way he does it
1: yeah well the writer's writing a book in the context of Roman empire And and most of the scholars uh, that are working on Revelation today reckon with the fact that Revelation is written in and around and during the time of Nero's persecution. Nero, of course, is an absolutely insane ruler in the first century. I mean, he he gets to the place where not only does he blame the Christians uh, for causing the fires in Rome, he will uh, tar them and hang them on crosses and use them, and light them on fire to be the outdoor lights for his orgies and parties. Mm. That did, could not have smelled good. Mm. You know? Yes. Nero, so Nero is this kind of prototypical Antichrist figure, this empire thing that's going on. An empire always conquers through threat of force and violence, um, uh, shock and awe, you know, um, mutually assured dis- destruction. Hmm. um and the, and the writer is writing in the context of being part of this small group of of early christians that has no chance against empire and but they're writing from the perspective of following one who had no chance against empire either that's jesus hmm. i mean when jesus dies on the cross nobody in the ancient world looked at that and said oh This is the actual end of empire. Nobody looked at Jesus' death and said, oh, the principalities and powers are being conquered. Nobody looked at Jesus' death and said, oh, he's crushing Satan's head. Mm. Because what's happening on the cross? A criminal is being given his just desserts. From the perspective of everybody there, nothing salvific could possibly be happening. Mm. You Mm. just had a Jewish Galilean who was accused of blasphemy and sedition, thrown up onto a Roman cross, and empire wins when Jesus takes his last breath. Mm. Three days later, is the announcement, no, that in fact the greatest act of salvation took place on that little hill, Calvary, the greatest act of God took place, the greatest revelation of God's character took place, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. How? How was this occurring? Because as I mentioned before, Jesus from the cross forgives his persecutors. Not only does he teach forgiveness, not only is it in the Lord's Prayer and in all the parables, and some, he's actually now living it out. He could have in the garden, as he says to the disciples, I could call legions of angels down. I could. And if I did that, my father's whole program would go out the window. I would simply be like an emperor, a king, a president, whatever. But Jesus does not do that. And, and what happens now is readers come to the book of the Revelation and they go, okay, well, he didn't do it then. But he's sure gonna do it again, <laughs> you know. He comes riding on the white horse with his armies, and 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 uh, we have Armageddon, and of course we know what Tim LaHaye and and uh, oh. Phil Jenkins did with this piece, you know, and and what they what what's happening at that point is is that we've completely turned Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, into the Antichrist of the Book of the Revelation, yeah, yeah. the one who who lived and breathed and died for giving now becomes retributive. And and so to, to do that is to create a false Christ, is to create an antichrist. Now, if, if in fact, if it's true that that's what the writer of the Revelation meant, then this book does not belong in the New Testament. Mm. But mm. I don't think that's what he meant, mm. or she meant. Probably he the you know, writer does not mean that.
0: You know, you uh, in in saying that, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, it's almost like we think that Jesus had 2000 years to think about what those guys did to him, you know, on the cross and got really pissed off and didn't go to anger management. And so he comes back to to kind of settle the score. And you actually I'm telling you, Michael, I was at lunch one day reading this book and I was reading your chapter at lunch and I emailed you after it because I, I read the song at the end of your chapter Yes. Uh, and and i'm trying to remember what what exactly was the title jesus why is
1: why is jesus always coming back pissed
0: and i'm telling you i just rolled laughing in that restaurant because it is so it's exactly it's exactly what the traditional american notion is of the book of revelation that yeah. jesus is really ticked off and i mean even the rhetoric that we hear from the conservative right and from Just, you know, all of the, all of the traditional perspectives, it's all this rhetoric about God is really ticked at sinners and he's ready to get even. And I'm thinking, how do we reconcile that Jesus with first century Jesus who loves his enemies?
1: It's irreconcilable. That's precisely the problem. I mean, for a long time, for a long time, I thought that we should just do what Luther and Calvin did and either not comment on the book or throw it out. Um... I've had real issues with the way it's been interpreted, and I was not ever satisfied with the way it had been interpreted. And so the essays in the book Compassionate Eschatology, in a sense, kind of converted me mm. into mm. This, this new reading. And it at least allowed me hope yeah. for reading Revelation differently than I had, had previously done. And I had fallen into that mistake that so many people fall into, namely that the conservative dispensationalist um, uh, reading of the book of the revelation is the way it's meant to be read you
0: mm-hmm. know and
1: so i i, I frankly think that's a uh, 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 a bunch of toilet waste
0: yeah so yeah. i would
1: throw that whole thing out yeah but um but i'm fairly convinced now that in fact uh revelation is a document precisely about the nonviolence of of god and um, I'll be talking a little bit later, we'll talk about this whole business of what it means for both Jesus and the martyrs in the book, and us as well, to be faithful and true witnesses. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've got to, we have got to uh, find a way to, um, to really deconstruct this entire Antichrist that Tim LaHaye has made so popular, that dispensationalism, Schofield uh yeah you know, it, it is an antichrist it's a false christ that's right and no wonder people reject christianity that's right i, I would reject that kind of a jesus yeah yeah it, it, you know and um and for for readers to say well jesus came in his first coming he was nice and forgiving but later he's going to be retributive well good god i i grew up with people like that you know <laughs> and i walked away from them and and um, if if any human being acted the way that the dispensationalists say Jesus is going to act, we would have him arrested. Well, we did, man. you know, the the leader from Bosnia, the, the, the one from, um, uh, oh, the former Soviet bloc country, I can't think of the uh, either the country or the name of, of the leader that was tried in the Hague, Saddam Hussein. Oh, yeah. You know? We throw them in jail. We try them for war crimes. Idi Amin, I mean, Adolf Hitler. If Jesus is just like these guys, then he's no different. That's right. You know anybody else?
0: That's right. That's right. Mm, Good stuff. Do you want to take a break there, Michael? It's three oh six. Are you good? Keep going. Okay. Well, I tell you, um, the the thing of of Revelation five being the interpretive lens for all of Revelation that that is a huge starting point. And then another thing that really helped me was to realize that Revelation is not, uh, according to what a lot of your authors are saying, for instance, Denny Weaver um, is saying that Revelation is not predicting future events.
1: That's right. It's not a blueprint for the end time.
0: And you know, he, he really brought out something that I thought was a great point, that if... if uh, the book of Revelation was written to the seven different churches Mm -hmm. and it was meant for them to understand it. And it even says in the book of Revelation, you know, blessed is the one who understands this. It's talking to the ones it's written to. Then if all of this stuff was going to happen 21 centuries later in our time, then the whole book of Revelation becomes totally unintelligible to a first century reader, which is highly problematic.
1: Yes. Well, again, it's, it's a specific type of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. It's, it's like the book of Daniel or First Enoch. Um, and apocalyptic literature is literature that's written in code. Because apocalyptic literature is written from the perspective of the victimized. And the victimized can't come out and speak against empire. In fact, for example, today in the United States, we have the Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act essentially limits the way you can critique American Empire. Hmm. So if you want to, if you really want to do a, a really serious critique of American Empire, you speak in code. You you talk you know um, uh, subversively uh, by using yeah coded language. Hmm. It's going to get worse, but in a in a dictatorship, which is essentially what the Roman Empire was, a dictatorship where you cannot ever speak against empire no matter what, in any way, shape, or form, well, you're going to use this metaphorical, symbolic language. And that way, you know, if uh, a reader uh, uh, that's um, in the administration of the empire should happen upon the book, they're not going to be able to figure it out. Yeah. And so apocalyptic is this coded language of the victimized. And uh, to turn it into some kind of blueprint for the end of time, um, to do what Hal Lindsay did in the late Great Planet Earth, or, or the authors of the Left Behind series have done, is to absolutely misread it. I mean, there's no, there's just, there's no two ways about it. It's a, it's to read it against the grain of what the writer is doing in the first century. Absolutely. Mm.
0: So basically, you've got Revelation as kind of this code book, and if you think about it, if John, if it was John on the Isle of Patmos that really did write it mm-hmm. um, as an exile by the Roman government, he's going to have to send that through Roman centurion hands to get it to where it needs to go. So yeah. there's a lot of chance of a lot of different people reviewing that, kind of like, uh, kind of like in communist countries, how email right. is scanned and things like that. So it makes perfect sense that that's would be what happens. Yes. You know, going going back to this Revelation five thing, um, you said something earlier that I just want to I want to talk about a little bit is this idea that the lion and the lamb are actually competing metaphors for how um, how power is to be exerted. Yes, because all of us believe uh, no matter what stripe of Christian we are, we all believe that God is sovereign in whatever you know, whatever sense that means, we're not getting into Calvinism, Arminianism, all that stuff. But we all believe that God is is all powerful, that He's omnipotent, and therefore He does reign. But it's the quality of that reign, and it seems like the Book of Revelation, as a critique of empire, really is about two cities. And I know this is brought out in the book about yes. New Jerusalem and about Babylon, yes. and comparing those two cities and showing how the one city leads to destruction, death greed, Mm -hmm. all of the bad adjectives I can come up with and the one leads to life and the presence of God. Talk a little bit about that, Michael.
1: Well, think of it this way. Um, Suppose, for example, uh, we were to elect a Christian president in the United States and suppose instead of the kind of uh, um, uh, false Christianity that so many of these candidates seem to espouse, suppose we were to elect a, a Christian president that took Jesus' teaching on nonviolence seriously. And suppose that Christian president should say, well, the first thing we're going to do is we are going to disband the Department of Defense. We don't need any more military. Uh, the second thing we're going to do is um, we're going to ask the world forgiveness for all of our empire building. The third thing we're going to do is we're going to be the most compassionate country on the planet and figure out how to serve the world. Now, how long do you think a president like that would remain in office?
0: Well, first he wouldn't get there.
1: Well, it's exactly right. He wouldn't get there. Because when we think of leadership, uh, which is essentially what uh, messiahship and first century Judaism is about, when we think of leadership, when we think of rulers... We think of those who exercise power through the use of force Mm. or violence. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, you have this crucified Jewish Galilean who has conquered but not used force, who has challenged principalities and powers and overcome them Without violence, who has um, managed to um, bring an end to violent human culture through through the announcement of forgiveness of sin? We don't think that love is a powerful force. We don't see love and forgiveness as more powerful than war and conflict and force. Because we are so used to getting our way through the use of force. How do I get my way with someone? Well, I get angry with them. I raise my voice. I threaten them. That puts them in a position where they either have to challenge me or I beat them. I beat them through the through this. Or uh, how do I get my way? I'm stronger and bigger than than the child I'm de- Dealing with, and so I threaten them with my power. If you don't do what I say, I'll beat the crap out of you. Hmm. Well, I get my way, and so we're so used to thinking in these terms. So, so the United States, you know, somebody somebody does something to us, and we say, well, we've got this military and these bombs. We're going to beat the daylights out of you, and we go do it. And people go, ooh, ooh, America's big and bad. Ooh, we're scared of them, you know. And we sit back as Americans and we go, yeah, see how bad we are? See how, how good we are? We're so tough. Well, this notion that power and violence, it's the same word, by the way, in German, gewalt, um, and in many languages, uh, "bia" in Greek, force or violence, um, that, that we can use force as a way of conquering the other person. That is the way of the Satan. Mm. That's how Satan conquers. God conquers through love. But because we are, we have so much we want to hang on to. Um, here's the deal, Rayborn. Be straight up with you. And this is where uh, my wife and I yesterday spoke to a group of pastors. Um, uh, they're all reading The Jesus Driven Life. and So they invited us to come and address them. And as we're driving home, she says to me, You know, Michael, we encounter the same thing everywhere we go. Those that are willing to give up everything, get what you're saying. Mm. Those that have something to hold on to, whether it's a lifestyle, whether it's a grudge, as long as you're holding on to something, they're the ones that can't see what you're talking about. Mm. And I said, well, you know, when you're crucified, you're not holding on to anything. And we are crucified with Christ. Mm. There, There's nothing that we're holding on to. There's nothing we can hold on to. We, when we are crucified with Christ, we have done the same thing Jesus did. We've committed our whole existence to the care of our heavenly Abba. And we've said, we trust you that this is not the end. Well, this is precisely what the Lamb of the book of Revelation is all about. The Lamb of the book of the Revelation is one who gave up everything, surrendered everything, And in this extraordinary act of love, forgave those who killed him. Mm. Now, if we are unwilling to see that the word of love, um, the word of peace, the word of forgiveness, the word of reconciliation is, in fact, more powerful than any threat of force, any threat of violence, what we're going to end up with is a God that's no different than we are. So we Sorry. make God in our image. And that's why the Jesus of the Left Behind series looks so damned American.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's he right. He does. That's right. I
1: mean I mean, as you you used uh, the Schwarzenegger reference, the Commando movie, the Stallone reference to Rambo. The Jesus of the Left Behind series is a super elite, um special forces, uh 007 um master disaster. <laughs> you know? I mean I mean the Jesus of the left behind series is truly to be feared. Yeah, yeah. Now, if that's who Jesus is, if that's who Jesus is, I will tell him to his face I would rather go to hell than go to be in your heaven. Mm. Mm.
0: Now right there, right there, Michael, that's where a lot of people feel the disconnect. Is because there's this there's this mentality that no matter who God is, if I find out that He's you know I I, I'm just shooting straight with you if if I find out that He's the Calvinistic God that is uh, predestining most of humanity to go burn for eternity Mm -hmm. and He's He's getting this little clique together that He's going to spend eternity with and pour out Mm -hmm. glory on if that's who I find out God is then I want to conform. That's that's the way people think of it. Well, sure they do. Or or if I find out that God is is like what we're talking about, then let me just get with the program and conform. But I think what you're saying is so important because it gets to the fact of we're not really following Jesus in the way of Jesus unless we get to the place that we would say what you're saying because it's not
1: in our heart. Jesus predicted that there would be antichrists in the world. Yeah. And the church has always looked for the antichrists out there in the world. But the mm. antichrists come from the church. Mm. We are the ones that create the false Christs. We are the ones that create the false Jesuses. Uh, little John, Little John, I call it Little John, First John, says there are many antichrists among us. It is the church, not the world. It's You're not going to find some secular figure out there one day going, oh, hey, I'm Jesus Christ, and I'm better than Jesus, and I'm blah, blah. No, it's going to come from within the church, and it comes from within the church's theology whenever Jesus it becomes um, made in the image and likeness of violent humanity. Mm. That's the Antichrist.
0: And really, Michael, until we get to the place that we could say, if that's who he was, I want nothing to do with him, yeah. then really we're only following him out of a selfish motive, a selfish ambition, oh, a yeah. a uh, just really it, it's more like he's a he's the Godfather instead of God, the father. He's the Godfather. Oh,
1: yeah. he's, that's right. That's you know, great. That's we just great.
0: we want his yeah. protection. We want we want yeah. his yeah. we want his, uh, you know, as long as we stay in his good graces, we're OK. If for some reason we turn on him, then we're going to get oozied in the back, you know. Yeah. And to me, I'm, I'm at the same place. And I know Brad Jerzak and I were talking about this. Of finally getting to the place where we could say, if God was like that, mm-hmm. I don't want anything to do with Him.
1: I'll tell you what I I have a deep suspicion that the Enlightenment uh, and modernist and postmodernist rejection of Christianity is not a rejection of Jesus. It's a rejection of the Antichrist of the Church. In other words, people are going, Jesus, we like. But this violent God, this this retributive Jesus of revelation, we don't want anything to do with. The, yeah. the human Jesus we like. And if, if being a Christian means not following this human Jesus and his path of discipleship to the cross, but means you know being retributive, being powerful, blah, 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 war-mongering, etc., we don't want anything to do with it. Then the world has rightly rejected this because it is not gospel. It's not oiangelion, good news. It's deusangelion, bad news. And the world's smart enough to go. That's bad news. Let's throw it out.
0: Wow, that's powerful stuff, Michael. You know, in the in the book, uh one of the one of the major themes is this idea of the war of the Lamb, mm-hmm. and we're talking about language being subverted and, and imagery being supplanted. Um, this idea of the war of the lamb was really intriguing to me because when you begin to understand revelation through the lens of nonviolence and the, especially the, the advent of Jesus, Jesus's first advent, then you have to, you have to reorient yourself to even what the word war in the war of the lamb can mean. In right. revelation twelve eleven, it says this, and this was a real key for me in your book. It says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Yes. And to me, that really encapsulated what the book was talking about with this yes. whole imagery of the war of the Lamb. That, kind of like what Paul said, our weapons aren't, aren't carnal, but they're mighty, to God, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This idea that the way that we overcome is not by coercion, but by giving our lives as an example for others to see, so yes. that they'll be transformed by our own demise.
1: The, the, the fact is, Ray, um, most people who have hurt other people, and I'm Christians who have hurt other people, have not experienced the grace, forgiveness, and love of God from others, whether it's parents, fellow parishioners, felt pastors. If you are a Christian, or you grow up in a Christian home, and you hurt someone, chances are you are going to experience some form of retribution. It can be very, very, very uh, overt. It can be passive-aggressive. But chances are you're not going to experience grace. Very, very little grace is shown in uh, Christian relationships. Mm. It takes such an incredible amount of commitment to the cross of Christ. Mm. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I'll just—I mean, this is who I am, and this is part of my story. And back in 1993, and I talk about this in the introduction to the Jesus-driven life. Back in 1993. Um, I was pastor in a small church, and uh, things got uh, very tough for me. I was in a a situation where I had no no colleagues. There was no collegiality amongst the local ministers. I was having to do this thing on my own, fresh out of seminary, did did not really know how to do it, and I crashed and burned as a a minister. I just didn't know how to deal with the um, uh, conflicts that were occurring in the church. And the way I dealt with it was to end up... um, Uh, having to deal with, at that point, which was a difficult marriage with Laurie, and so I ended up having this torrid affair. Well, when my ministry crash and burns and the affair is over in 94, I am left absolutely destitute. Everything that was important to me was gone. Ministry was gone. Marriage was gone. I had nothing left. I literally had nothing left. I was a great big fat zero, and I thought about committing suicide several times, even... Uh, attempted it several times, but never succeeded. I just couldn't go through with it. I was so... I, I, I had hit the bottom so fast and so hard. I, I was shattered like a mirror into a thousand pieces. Hmm. And Lori came to me, called me one night and to get together, um, uh, about six weeks after this, this whole mess had kind of crashed. And, and she said, Michael, she said, when we met... Um, we both knew that night we met; we were meant to be together. We both knew that we were called by Jesus to be together. And she says, "I forgive you." Mm. Now I couldn't hear this; wow. I could not hear this at the wow. time because 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 being forgiven felt wrong because mm. I had done so much to hurt her. I mean, I had hurt her like like you know. I mean, any woman listening to this uh, podcast right now knows exactly what my wife was going through. Mm. I had hurt her to the core. I had taken her heart out, sliced it, diced it, and ate it in front of her. Mm. I mean, I I literally killed her, you know. But she loves Jesus so much. She came back to me and she says, I forgive you. I want to be with you. I want to work this out. I want to make this happen. And um, it took us a decade of healing to... um, for, for me to heal, really. I mean, she's, she's an amazing, extraordinary woman. Um, but what I've learned from this is that she could have walked away, mm. but she manifested the grace and love of God to me. Mm. And I have to say this. God, if, if God is not at least as good as my wife... Mm. If God is not as gracious and forgiving and loving as my wife, then my wife should be God. Yeah, yeah,
0: I I, I agree, Michael. I agree.
1: You know, and and that's why when when um, having been the recipient of this kind of forgiveness, I mean, and I'll tell you, you know, we go to church and we say, "Oh God, please forgive me my sins." Or or we do these little secret things, you know, maybe we do a little drug in here, a little drink in there, we watch some pornography here, we do this there, and, and then we feel all guilty. Oh, I'm so ashamed, I, you know, I yelled at this one, I did that, 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 that. Oh, please forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. It's so abstract. Mm. But when we have hurt someone else to the core, and they come to us, and they don't bring retribution, they bring grace, when they... Come to us, and they they, they don't um, threaten us, chastise us, put conditions on us. They say, "I love you," and this is what love is. Mm. It changes. It changed my world. Changed my world. Mm. And and I and, it, and that's why I say in the Jesus-driven life, I don't live the Jesus-driven life. My wife does. I just come to people more. It's true, though. It's true. Oh, man. And, So, here's the thing, is that if my wife gets Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of the Gospels, and she could have been like the the dispensationalist Jesus of the book of the Revelation, well, you know, if I have to face the Jesus of the book of the Revelation the way the dispensationalists have him, as this violent, vindictive, retributive thing, I get to look that Jesus straight in the eye and say, you know what? Your father, your heavenly father, gave the Holy Spirit to the wrong person. Should have given it to my wife.
0: (laughs) Amen, brother. All I can say is amen. First of all, let me say thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being willing to open up and share that. That is a powerful, powerful, powerful illustration of what we're talking about. Because I tell you, Michael, when we start talking about unconditional love, Steve and I just did an episode. We just posted it a week ago. On law and love. When we were talking about law and love, exactly, and unconditional love. And, you know, a little bit of the pushback that that we've gotten on that, which we haven't gotten a lot, but is the idea that that can really be construed. People can hear us talking about unconditional love, and they can hear it as law. They can, they can hear it as we're saying, if you don't do this right and you don't love this way and then, then, you know, you're just, you're out, you're out in left field and, and you're missing God and this kind of thing. And that is not at all what we're saying. That's not at all what we're saying. We're saying that God is so good and God is so unretributive and so loving and so freely giving, freely forgiving, giving before we even deserve it.
1: That's right.
0: Then, that's what we have to emulate and it's not a slave it's not a slavish thing of trying to measure up to some standard it's just simply saying like with you and your wife lori because mm-hmm. she did that for you mm-hmm. your heart has been totally changed towards her so mm-hmm. that now it almost becomes in some ways it becomes impossible for you to hurt her because of the well, gift she gave you
1: i wouldn't say it's impossible but, right i could still be a bit of an asshole sure sure um But what it's impossible for me to do is when she hurts me to not forgive her. Yeah. That's impossible now. How can I I not genuinely forgive and love, you know, in this relationship? So here's the thing, Ray, as I said earlier. Listeners and readers of the Bible, when we encounter each other, We've rarely, rare is the human being who's experienced unconditional love and forgiveness from another human being. Rare. That's why we look at a Mother Teresa, who works with the lepers in Calcutta, and who who manifests this extraordinary grace to folks who could never pay her back anything, and we say, "Oh, she's a saint." Hmm. But in our lives, I mean, I mean, can you can you think of anyone in your life that you have ever hurt? to the core that has come back and forgiven you. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, we just don't know people that do this. When we hurt each other, we walk away from the relationship, we say we'll be friends, but we're not. We talk about each other behind our... We we do all kinds of things that we call Christian that have nothing to do with being reconciled. But when we killed Jesus and we killed him... Yeah, that's right. we, We did to him what I did to my wife. We killed him. It is God who says, "I love you. I forgive you. The, you're, the, to be in a relationship with you is more important to me than than what you've done to me." Mm. And be, you know, we we have this abstractly in our heads. It's like, yo, God loves me. I'm forgiven. My sins are forgiven." The things that but but we do, it's not in our guts. It's not uh, the thing that burns within our hearts, and it has not transformed our thinking. It's not
0: reality. It's, it's not reality. It's Ethereal. It's that's some right. it's some theological creed or doctrinal right. statement, right. but it's not reality. And you know, I, would, I, I look at Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, yes. and you know, he doesn't. The thing that gets me is not only does he does he forgive her, but he doesn't even rake her over the coals first. Oh, you that's know? right. I mean, he, right. doesn't, he doesn't say anything about, now I want you to understand that what you did was really, really wrong, and That's God right. was really, really upset. And if you do that again, I don't know that I can forgive you this time. He doesn't That's say right. anything. He just says, I'm not going to condemn you. Now just go and leave your life to sin.
1: I would put this challenge out to every listener. Every listener has a choice to be like the Lamb of Revelation 5 or they have a choice to be the retributive dispensationalist Jesus in their relationships with their husband, their children, their neighbors, their, their fellow Christians. I would challenge every single listener to, um, to either take a hurt, a pain in their life, some, something somebody's done to them, um, and to ask, if I was to deal with this as the Lamb of Revelation 5, what would the relationship look like? Mm. If I was to deal with this the way the dispensationalists read the rider on the white horse, what would this relationship look like? Mm. And which one is God calling me to? Mm. And because there are plenty of folks that would listen to this podcast who have been hurt by others. And um, at that point, they have an opportunity to be Jesus to the other person. See, this is what we don't get. We talk about the priesthood of all believers. And we think what it means is I don't need to confess my sins to a human being. I could just confess them to God. No. What it means is we get to be priests to each other. And if you hurt me, I can forgive you because I have hurt God. And God has forgiven me. I didn't hurt God abstractly by breaking rules. I mean, if God is hurt because I broke God's rules, God is just a wimp. He's mm. a tyrant. Who can believe in that kind of fairy tale God? Mm. But if God is hurt because I truly wounded God, I rejected love, I rejected forgiveness, I rejected compassion and mercy, and God still came back with love and forgiveness and compassion and mercy, well... Now I can be the mediator of that to the other who does And this is why in the text you read from Revelation chapter 12, it says that the the, uh, martyrs overcome the Satan, the accuser, the one who's falsely accusing them. You did this wrong, you did that wrong, or maybe not falsely accusing them. I mean, you know how it is when you do something wrong. The first voice in your head that goes off is the satanic voice. The accuser. Yeah, Christians like to say, oh, that's my conscience. Bullshit. That's the devil. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of forgiveness. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. The martyrs aren't crying out for vengeance. Hmm. Second, and by the word of their testimony, that is, this this faithful word, this, and, and so we come now to Revelation 19, and Jesus is called this faithful and true witness. What does this mean? Jesus is this faithful and true witness, and why are the martyrs called faithful and true? Ted Grimsrud, in his essay in Compassion Eschatology, says, Jesus rides forth clothed in a robe dipped in blood, the blood of the Lamb, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, the word of testimony. Jesus is faithful to death, and the word that he speaks is true. The word of forgiveness is true. Richard Baucom, in his essay, says something very similar. He says in his essay, uh, i got to find the, where the sentence starts, sure. the phrase, no lie was found in their mouth, is a scriptural one used to both the servant of the Lord in Isaiah three nine and the remnant of Israel in Zephaniah 3.13. Like other Jewish exegetes of the time, John is adept at noticing where two biblical texts use the same words and he brings them together. It is appropriate that they should be as free from untruthfulness as he, Jesus, is. There is a hint here that their truthfulness is connected with the death to which they follow the Lamb. There's faithful and true again. Mm. And then Jay Phelan, in his essay, in uh, in the Compassion Eschatology, says, Ironically, Revelation bears witness to a nonviolent Lamb and a nonviolent community standing in opposition to the most powerful empire ever known. Their victory is their witness in words and in blood. There's faithful and true. Mm. Stephen Finnamore, in his essay, makes the same exact point. He says... Those who seek to follow Jesus contribute to the subversive effect of the gospel story. This is most especially true of the martyrs, of whom Girard says, quote, this is Rene, dying in the same way as Jesus died for the same reasons as he did, the martyrs multiply the revelation of the founding violence, faithful and true. Hmm. Faithfulness is being willing to die for the other. Hmm. Truth is speaking the word of forgiveness when one is killed at the hands of the other Mm. here's the deal bro if we have a nice life if things are good if um you know we're, we're we're comfortable in our comfort zone if we have things we're hanging on to we can never be faithful and true because if somebody tries to take these objects out of our hands these things we cling on to whether it's our job prestige power in a relationship um, our our car, our home, our country, whatever it is, somebody trying to take something from us, as long as we're hanging on to it, we are not crucified with Christ. Mm. Because, as I said before, when you're crucified, your hands are wide open.
0: You know, Paul, when you were saying that earlier, something really hit me where Paul said to the Galatians, I think it was to the Galatians, he said that, that he that not only has he been crucified with Christ but that the world has been crucified to him.
1: That's right. So
0: that the world doesn't not only does the world not have does does he does, does the world not have a hold on him but he no longer holds the world with a closed fist.
1: That's, That's exactly right man. Everything's That's, open. Yep. Everything is open. You know with what you're
0: with what you're talking about and talking about these two cities in Revelation, the, the new Jerusalem mm-hmm. and, and Babylon. You know, we have been taught through dispensationalism that Babylon is this end-time, reincarnate city that's, you know, that's uh, this whole commerce thing going on. And right. the New Jerusalem is after the end of time, and, right. and the city comes down, and everything's destroyed with fire, and there's this, this new city that God's people get to go to. And according to a lot of the people in the book, these are really present realities that yeah. we choose to live in through all the daily decisions that we make in our lives. That we are either choosing to walk in Babylon yes. or choosing to participate in the New Jerusalem. That's right. There was a quote by Tony Campolo that he said a long time ago that really hit Tony me. Tony
1: is so great, isn't he? he I tell you, he, he's Campolo a firecracker. Awesome.
0: I love it. I love that guy. <laughs> yeah, he said something one time that really hit me. He said, you know, America, people can say that it's the greatest country on earth, but it's still Babylon. It might yeah. be the greatest Babylon on earth, but it's still Babylon. At the end of the day, it's still part of that system of retribution yes. and me, myself, and I, and looking out for number one. And the New Jerusalem is all about the other. It's all about it's all about uh, relationships where all of the d- bridges that divide us are torn asunder.
1: That's why I get a kick out of these so-called Christian candidates for president. Yeah, yeah, they're a joke, they're a joke, frankly. Yeah, I mean, frankly. because if they, if you know, they say, whoa, we've got to get back to the Founding Fathers and Judeo-Christian principles, you know, and, and by God, if it were true that America was a Christian nation, um, one would at least expect that nation to be forgiving toward enemies that attacked it, one would at least expect the nation to be compassionate to the poor, but no. We live. What did CNN.com say today? Half of Americans live near or at the poverty level, or below below the poverty level. Half. The one percent keep growing. Hmm. I mean, we live in a in a nation that does preemptive war. We live in a nation where corporations have more power than people. And corporations are now recognized by the Supreme Court as people.
0: Wow. We live in,
1: we live in a nation where um, we've defined what's right and wrong in, in such a way that the powerful are always right and the powerless are always wrong. Mm. Now, there was a commentary on the Book of the Revelation written in 1967 at the height of the Vietnam War by a New York lawyer This fella, I'll I'll say his name in a moment in the title of the book, this fella looked at the book of the Revelation in 1967, and his argument is that Babylon is America, Hmm. the United States. And the fella is William Stringfellow. The book is an ethic for for strangers and aliens in a foreign land, or something to that effect. I know I have the book here on my shelf, and the question is whether I can... Find it very quick. <laughs> Get in the right title but what with all those
0: you, books behind you, Michael, I don't know.
1: <laughs> I think I actually have a. It's in my Stringfellow section. I have a bunch of his books <laughs> downstairs. Um, but the, 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 you're exactly right. When you read the Babylon, uh, Tony Campolo, William Stringfellow, Barbara Rossing, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, so many are right to say that the Babylon of the book of the Revelation is the United States of America. It is the it is the, the George Bush United States of America, the Newt Gingrich, the Rick Perry, the Sarah Palin, the Barack Obama, the John Kennedy, the Lyndon Johnson, the Ronald Reagan. I mean, it's... We are the nation that claims to be Christian, but we are Antichrist. Mm. Mm. You know, I... I... I um, I love everybody I meet, almost everybody I meet in this country. (laughs) (laughs) I I think people are incredible. I mean, people are just incredible. And and, uh, like most people I meet, most folks are just genuinely um, nice people when I meet them. Now, I'm not in relationship with them, so I don't know what they're like, right? But the reality is... We live in a culture that exploits. We live in a culture that tramples on others. We live in a culture. Co- I mean, today I'm reading on CNN.com, Victoria's Secret makes all of their beautiful lingerie, and they get their cotton from Burkina Faso, where child labor laborers are beaten and abused to pick the cotton for the, so that the ladies in our country can look good so the men will get laid. Wow. You know, I mean, it's we are wearing blood. We're wearing blood. We're driving blood. Mm. Our cars, you know, we, we're putting blood in our gas tanks. We're, I mean, every time we pull money out of our pocket, there's blood. We're pulling blood out. Wow. And until we realize this, I mean, there's not a whole lot you and I can do. We're both spending blood, using computers that were made in third world countries. I mean, we're we're, we're a bloody people. We have so much blood on our hands, Michael. It's, Unreal.
0: That's the thing that's been, uh, to be honest with you, that's been just really overwhelming for me. As I read the book, like for instance, reading uh, Barbara Rossing's chapter on climate change and global yes. warming, um, and trying to understand some of that in the light of, of Revelation, and, and I want to get into this a little bit later. But that's something that's been really overwhelming for me, is the sense of feeling like, how do I do it any other way? How yeah. do I, How do I live... I recognize that I live in the greatest empire on earth right now. And empire is what revelation was all about critiquing. Sure. So my question is, how do you live? And I've wondered this for quite some time. How do I live in a country like the United States mm-hmm. and actually be a follower of Jesus? Well, <laughs> it almost seems yeah. in some senses, it seems almost mutually exclusive.
1: It, it, yeah, it, it can feel that way. I, I would say this, um, I don't think it can be legislated, and so I can't tell you how to do it. Right, sure. Um, and I think, in a sense, that each one of us has to listen to the voice of Jesus for how this is going to begin working out for us. But first and foremost, it means that every relationship we have, we live as though we are the presence of Christ to the other. That's number one, mm. which means that we we genuinely learn to forgive others in the same way we want to be forgiven. We learn to love others in the same way we want to be loved. With the measure we measure we will be measured. If we measure forgiveness with a thimbleful we can't expect more from God. So we need to learn to love with buckets full, to forgive with buckets full. To show mercy and compassion by the by the by the bucket load. That's the first thing. Second, how does this work out practically? Well, it means that um, we learn how to look at our lifestyle and simplify it. And this is where I've learned so much, uh, both from my wife, who is very much into this, but by people like Shane Claiborne and others. How can I simplify my life? Well, maybe it means living in Christian community. You know, how do I leave less of a of a carbon footprint? Well, maybe I walk to the diner. Instead of driving, you know, it takes me two minutes to drive, ten minutes to walk. I mean, we, I, I have to learn to make these decisions. Maybe instead of buying a coffee um, produced somewhere uh, that's where there's exploitation taking place, I buy fair trade coffee. Um, I mean, we we make all kinds of simple decisions that we feel compelled to make, but I cannot legislate them for you. Right, sure. You know, because um, your world and your life and, and who you are is different. Um, but we can begin to say, you know, Jesus, how can I look at look at my own life and where can I make the changes so I am a little bit more like you every day? Mm. Where mm. how can I hear your voice every day and and become a little bit more like you so that maybe by the time I die, people will say there's a person that reminds us of jesus
0: Mm. you know that's that's the thing is um i think the call to discipleship has to be coupled with that whole idea of there being no condemnation in christ jesus because if you try to be a disciple of jesus apart from grace then you'll really drive yourself crazy (laughs)
1: you can't you cannot be a disciple under law yeah a yeah. disciple under law is under a yoke that is not easy, and under a burden that is not light. Yeah. And Jesus yeah. said His yoke is easy, His burden is light. Yeah. And this discipleship is lived with the Master, who is forgiving. That's right. God That's right. knows how many mistakes we make day in and day out, and every time we do, we turn to this one and we say, "Father, forgive me." And God says, "I forgive you. I love you." Yeah. Now, what'd you learn? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know.
0: Michael in the book, um, Jurgen Moltmann talks about something that really just flipped the script a lot for me on understanding Jesus' coming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've grown up in the in the conservative evangelical circles that I've grown up in, with Jesus' coming as really being a fearful thing for the majority of humanity. Yeah. And even to be quite honest, even as a believer, it was pretty darn scary to think about Jesus coming back. You know, the whole great white throne judgment and right. All the stuff that we think about and just it's it's yeah. really intimidating. But he says this, I want to quote him, it just really hit me. He said it is high time to Christianize our traditional images and perceptions of God's final judgment and to evangelize their present effects on our lives and worldviews, so that we may greet the coming judge of the world with joy. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come soon, and may live already here and now in the sunrise of God's justice on earth. Yes. And it really hit me that, oh my gosh, he's basically saying that this is, this is just a continuation of the good news. This is not, you know, and I think a lot of it, I've not even begun to realize how much I still need to deconstruct. Even, even harmonizing revelation with the first advent of Jesus, I still can see vestiges in my own thinking of the retributive factor coming in, oh, yeah. and just the way I even look at the coming of Jesus, is Jesus' oh, yeah. second coming as being kind of a fearful thing.
1: Yes,
0: And it just really helps me to think of uh, the idea that Jesus coming back is not this second good news that isn't really, it's not like Jesus dying and forgiving me, it's kind of he's coming back to kick some butt and I get to be on his side, but instead, it's justice and and a renewal for all of creation. Yes.
1: Here's the question, Ray. Um, If in our Christian existence we meet Jesus, we're born again, we have a spiritual experience, and we experience his love for us, and so we sing in in church, we praise his name, we we say we adore you, we love you, you know. Um, When we meet him, are we meeting a judge or are we meeting our beloved? Mm. You know i mean why why would it change? Why would death change the way we encounter christ
0: mm.
1: it doesn't it's just that we have had thousands and thousands and thousands of years and i mean human history this this business about hell and judgment and all this this is pre christian it's not mm. specifically christian i mean um and we've we've turned the encounter with God into um, an encounter of fear. Mm-hmm. But as Hebrew says, Christ liberates us from that fear. Or First John says, perfect love casts out fear. Christianity as a world religion is in the process of a significant change we're experiencing it now is the difference between liberal and conservative Christianity. That's how we're experiencing it. Both camps, both liberal and conservatives, are saying things that are very important to listen to. But one thing that is finally, I guess, coming out of the closet, so to speak, is that authentic Christianity, genuine Christianity... Christianity that conforms to Jesus is in the end, the long run, the the, the, the the final result, the love of the cross. It is the crucified, it is the slain lamb we encounter, it is our beloved, it is it is it is the God of life, the God who raises the dead, who forgives sins, who shows compassion and mercy. Any other God is not the Christian God. Mm. Now, mm. The, the church, what I mean, by and large, does not really preach this, it, because it, it's afraid. It can't. The church still believes. So I should say so much of Christianity is still clinging to a God who will make things right. Mm. Well, I've got news for the church. If you believe in a God who makes things right through retribution, or you could even call it justice, just think of all you've done to hurt somebody because God's going to make it right. And what does Mm -hmm. that mean for you? Well, the Catholics, if that's true, everybody should be Catholic. We should all be Catholic. Because at least the Catholic Church says there's, there's payback at the end, whether it's hell or purgatory or something, there's payback. But if, in fact, Payback is done away with. That's what Christ has done away with. The notion that God requires sacrifice, that God is a retributive God. If Jesus has come and showed us the way out of this kind of logic, bad logic, if he's the new logos, a new word, a word of life, a, 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 then what this fundamentally means is a change in every single Christian doctrine. And what we need to do, then, is ask, what does Christianity without violence look like? What does a doctrine of election without violence look like? What does a doctrine of atonement without retribution look like? What does eschatology without retribution look like? Well, it sure looks a lot like Jesus. Mm. There's a fantastic book. Um, uh, The guy's name is um, Adorio Koenig, K-O-N-I-G, and it's called The Eclipse of Christ in Eschatology. It's an absolutely Mm. splendid book. And the the whole thesis of that book is how we have uh, we Christians have created this eschatology apart from the person and character of Jesus. Mm. And um, for me, that's pres- what, that's precisely what's happened in so much of conservative Christianity. I mean, you mentioned earlier as the manager of a bookstore, you have a prophecy bookshelf. I would venture to say that. Doggone close to hundred percent of what's on that shelf is absolute nonsense. I mean, yeah. I, I'm willing to bet this. Yeah, um, I'm not going to do a Rick Perry and bet you ten grand because I don't have. <laughs> you know. but,
0: hey, but you I- can bet me your library. How's yeah. that? <laughs>
1: oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> easy, easy now, brother. I've got to hang it on here. That's right. <laughs> I can have my wife and kids. I can have my life. Um. <laughs> You laugh, but it's true. I, it's believe me. It's something I have to just constantly, just kind of let go in my head. But anyway, so, so the thing is, is that so much of what we want as prophecy, as eschatology, is oriented to something that is not Jesus, hmm. and it fundamentally is antichrist. I mean, nobody, nobody in a Christian bookstore wants to admit that most of the stuff that's in a Christian bookstore is anti-Christ, but it yeah. is. Yeah. And so they're not really Christian bookstores. They're anti-Christ bookstores. Mm. They're selling a false message. They're mm. selling a Jesus that never existed and doesn't exist. And, I, and I'll tell you, this is what when Moltmann says, we're, we, we greet Jesus with joy. I think the most surprised people on the planet that meet Jesus in the end are not going to be the sinners, but the Christians. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be absolutely overwhelmed. How could I have gotten you so wrong, Lord? You know, you know.
0: I think Jesus's parable about the workers in the vineyard is probably really apropos there. You know, where he goes out and the 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 uh, master of the vineyard mm-hmm. hires some workers at five in the morning and some at nine in the morning and noon and three and four and six and the ones come and they come in reverse order and mm-hmm. and the ones that have been there the longest are expecting, you know, gosh, if he paid them that much, he's got to pay me a Mac daddy right. amount. Right. And they get there and they get the same thing and they're kind of teed off about it. And they're yep. like, wait a minute. And his answer to them is like, you know what? You're not God. And, yeah. and my answer is, you know what? I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because if I was, I wouldn't be like that. And I that's think right. that's what, that's what's so bothersome to us because we don't realize how much our Christianity has been created in the image of us That's and right. not in the image of Christ? That's right. Because the majority of it has been, I think.
1: Oh, it's it's when you study church history, um, it's just absolutely remarkable. Because um, church history really is quite Janus-faced, to use Dietrich Rischel's term. I, there's there's a lot of good stuff there, but there's a lot of incredibly bad stuff there too. Yeah. yeah. And. Um, i mean the the Gospel has had a, a a rocky road since Jesus was here. It's had an uphill battle, and it's taken two thousand years for for us to begin to break out of christian for the gospel to break out of this religious matrix called Christianity, for it to to um, bear fruit that uh, i mean like think of a Gandhi, for instance mm hmm Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount all the time. It was his, one of his favorite texts. And he lived this Sermon on the Mount thing. He lived it. For my money, Gandhi was more of a Christian than so many folks that sit in a church pew on Sunday. Yeah. Well, was he born again? No. Right. Did he go to church? No. Did he believe he, in the he Apostles? He tried to. <laughs> uh, did he believe in the Apostles' Creed? Probably not. Right. Did he seek to follow Jesus and live a Christian life? Yes. Hmm. You know, Hmm. Um, when he gets to heaven, is Jesus going to say, oh, crap, you be Hindu. You're not welcome here. Oh, no, go somewhere else. I'll burn. You got burn. No, he's not going to do that. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to say, welcome, my brother. Welcome. Yeah. Um, Hmm. Love is a force. Yeah. Love is a force. Love is a power. Love conquers all. Love is love is um, the one thing that we just don't want to get. There's a, I forget who the scholar was. He's a rather remarkable scholar. Started out in psychology, ended up doing all this wonderful Second Temple Jewish stuff. Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember his name. But he has this great thing. He says, you know, we lose grace so fast. We want God to be gracious to us. Mm. But then we turn right around and limit grace to others. We want yeah. God to forgive us, but we limit how we forgive others. And, and we, the that there's somehow there's this recognition that we want God to be all these wonderful things for us, but damned if we're going to be them for others. Yeah. So I yeah. keep coming back to this business of who, who in your existence can you be Jesus to? the the martyrs in the in the in the book of the revelation were faithful and true they were faithful to death they did not retaliate they did not do violence against those who violated them they prayed for their persecutors they blessed their persecutors i mean you it's an amazing thing to read the stories of the martyrs uh, in in the early christian accounts they blessed their persecutors they prayed for those who killed them you know um and and then and then the amazing thing to me is you get to the 16th century and there's this whole new crop of martyrs. They're called Anabaptists, and these um, Anabaptists will eventually put together a, a great big fat fat book called the Martyrs' Mirror, and it it chronicles you know the martyrs from Stephen through the early church and some of the Middle Ages and Wycliffe and Huss and and then it gets to the Anabaptist martyrs. Now the amazing thing is. When the Anabaptists, you know, there's there's so-called peace church people, when they're dying, they're pronouncing judgment. God's going to get you. God's going to get mm. you. They're not doing Stephen. Father, mm. forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wow. I mean, and so, you know, when people persecute us, we say, oh, you're against God. You're against Jesus. You're against Christianity. You're going to get yours. God's going to get you because you don't like God. Bah, 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 bah. We do all of this nasty stuff, and we don't look at the, those that are, you know, like the Richard Dawkins of the world, we don't say, you know, brother, we forgive you. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Just, I understand where you're coming from. You know, I, it's I love you. And we don't demonstrate the love of Christ to people. We don't demonstrate his forgiveness. We don't live it out in our relationships. And so people look at us and they go, well, if that's what Jesus is about, forget it.
0: I know uh, there's an archbishop uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, Lazar Pahalo,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that uh, and he's in your book "Stricken by God," and he said something that just you know really registered with me. He said that really he he thought that the advent of atheism, that it wasn't a coincidence that atheism emerged on the scene the same time as things like Calvinism during the Protestant Reformation. Yes. He said that he doesn't believe that atheists are rejecting God as much as they're rejecting the kind of God you just described with the retributive, vindictive, uh, you're going to get it that that was the God they were rejecting. And Absolutely. rightly so. So that sometimes atheists actually end up like when I, when I was, I was listening to a debate with um, Christopher Hitchens mm-hmm. and I, I think he was doing well with Dinesh D'Souza. But anyway, Christopher Hitchens, the God he was describing the, the God of Christianity that he was rejecting. I sat there and went, I don't find myself so out of line with this guy because everything he was saying he rejected, I was going, I don't believe in that kind of God either.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, think of it this way. Have you ever met somebody that had an extremely loving uh, set of parents or parent that really loved them? And um, and they talk about them in wonderful, glowing terms. But then you've also met people that have had parents that were were were... Yeah, not so good, that we're perhaps abusive, emotionally abusive, sexually abusive, or whatever. Do these people then say, oh, I just love and adore my parents? Absolutely not.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, why why would we want to love a God that's abusive? Why would we want to love a God that um, is a power monger? Why would we want to love a God whose love is conditional? Why would... I mean, this is love—not that we love God, but that God first loved us. With conditions, with conditions, <laughs> the text doesn't say that. Nope. No, nope. it says He gave everything. What did He give? His beloved Son. Yeah. Did He? Did God withhold anything? No, mm-hmm. God withheld nothing, and then turned around and said, "Yo, Holy Ghost, I'm giving you too." <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. God is 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 is. Intrinsically giving, mm-hmm. and this is what Moltmann gets. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, 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 he is a, uh, an extraordinary theologian in his own right, and I encourage everybody whenever they you know use bookstore if they see a book by Moltmann to buy it. You know, especially his later stuff. Um, just a, a wonderful thinker, but um, Moltmann is absolutely correct. The Jesus we meet, we will meet with joy just mm. the, the same way when i wake up in the morning and i look up and i think jesus my beloved it will be no different when i take my last breath mm. because mm. I, I will not only say jesus my beloved jesus will say michael my beloved yeah that's right i uh, know
0: this mm. you know michael you know you said earlier you were talking about how the, the disconnect happens with grace when we realize that we need to offer it to someone else mm-hmm. and that we want God to be gracious to us but not to others. And Jim Brennan in the book really touched on something that I had just never really never really thought about. And that's the idea of, of communion or the Eucharist mm-hmm. as an eschatological meal.
1: Right. That
0: that in the Eucharist we have this microcosm of what the eschaton is supposed to be all about. Yeah. And that's the idea that everybody, that, that this marriage supper of the Lamb is really people of all stripes uh, laying down their rank, laying down their status, or or either laying it down or being elevated to the status of being a child of God and on par with everyone else. That there's an equality, that there's this, um that there's there's no hierarchy and no caste system Mm-hmm. That's supposed to be in the kingdom of God. And he really brings out in this something that I thought was really interesting is he talked about how the typical banquet in the first century, especially when it was a war banquet, Mm -hmm. which is what we seem to have a description of in the book of Revelation, Mm -hmm. that in those war banquets, you were it was it was as much known by who they didn't invite as who they did invite. Sure. Just they like t- were very intentional.
1: Oh sure, just like today you've got Hollywood A list, B list, C list, D list. Exactly. Exactly. Sure. Yeah,
0: and, and the whole idea that, that the banquets were meant to be I mean, we even talk we even used the word exclusive. Yep. I mean, yep. like you were just talking about well, Hollywood, this just hit me, Michael, with how we talk about these exclusive parties that Hollywood has during yep. the Grammy Awards or during yep. the the um you know all of these different award shows. And what is exclusive? It means not everybody gets in. When's it's the, excluding somebody.
1: When's the last time you were invited to a Grammy? Award? <laughs> well,
0: other we're, than we're, this year, we're, we're,
1: no, no, <laughs> we're no listers, man. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> we're not even on the Z list, But this idea that the communion was a perpetual invitation—that it was just that it was open to the whole body—this is revolutionary to me, Michael.
1: Yeah. Well, I can't. Say for certain. I've often had a sneaking suspicion. You know how when you go to a banquet your name tag is on the table and you're seated with people. I've often had the suspicion that when we get to heaven and we go find our seat at the banquet, sitting to our right and to our left will be our enemies. I, I Michael,
0: I have just told somebody and I hope somebody doesn't hear this wrong, but I've told people before, I think on my left side's gonna be John MacArthur and on my right side's gonna be like R. C. Sproul. I don't know. I mean <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think we've got a. We've it's going to be an opening
1: experience. It is. It is. Um, we we uh, again. What Brenneman is doing is he's arguing that there's a subversion of this banquet motif. I mean, all the authors in this book. This was what what really when I sat down to edit the essays for this book, um, and what really converted me uh, to to this perspective was that all of these authors were reading the text in the same way independently of one another it was absolutely remarkable you know um, most of these uh, folks do not know each other i mean they might know each other professionally but it's not exactly like they're all friends or something they might read each other's books you know but they're they're all hitting these themes identically and I, as I read this, I was astonished at the congruence of this reading of the book of Revelation. I just, I, I mean, I was converted, yeah. you know, and, and so the first half of the book is all the, the biblical interpretation, you know, and, and then the second half of the book is kind of the implications of that for systematic theology or eschatology and how we see things. And it just was remarkable to me that there is this flow from beginning to end, uh, that God is compassionate at the end, in the long run. In the final analysis, God is compassionate. And if we don't if we don't get that, we're not really speaking good news.
0: L- let me ask you, Michael, in light of that, I know in your chapter in the book, mm-hmm. um, you're talking about, if is the apocalypse inevitable? Mm-hmm. Is this something that we're on the road to and it's it's pretty much going to happen, or do we have a choice in it? Mm-hmm. Um, and just dovetailing that with some of the stuff I've seen from Rene Girard, it seems like I, it seems to me like Girard has a really pessimistic outlook on <sighs> on where we're headed.
1: Yeah, he does. Like, he does
0: where this whole thing's headed. And yet, it's like I, as as a believer in Jesus and believing in everything you just said about the character of God and who He is and how he's going to greet his enemies in a whole different way than what we expect. Knowing all of that, how can we be anything but optimistic? While, while I realize that there can be consequences for our immediate future, I mean, I guess I'm saying in the in the ultimate, mm. ultimate, and the ultimate end, how mm. can we in, be anything but optimistic if Jesus really is Lord?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things is uh, that, that I think we need to recognize is when we, 7 billion of us on the planet today, um, when we think about the end, we're thinking about the extinction of the species. Who's to say that hundred ninety five nine thousand nine hundred and thirty will die and 60 will survive and we won't start over again for, you know, the 5,000 years? I mean... We we tend to, to think that this is it. This is the big moment, you know, uh, um, kind of a mutually assured destruction. We're just going to wipe out this whole thing called the human project. When Rene looks at culture, when Rene looks at civilization and kind of the, the uh, growing mimetic conflicts that are occurring um, – and the fact that the sacrificial mechanism has broken down due to the influence of the Gospels, we were just going no longer scapegoat effectively. He says, well, you know, we're really headed for something that's pretty scary, the war of all against all. Everybody's just going to be for themselves and just kill everybody else, in that Hobbesian kind of way. Um yeah, how do you reconcile that with the gospel? Well, Tony Bartlett, of course, is very, very opposed to that kind of position. Tony thinks that we're moving toward a moment of transformation. That that this this apocalypse, which apocalypse in Greek just simply means unveiling or revelation, right. something new. something you know, that there is going to be this transformation. Well, the Native Americans have been talking about this for millennia. That we're coming hmm. on this this fifth age, the age of transformation. I mean, the in the '60s it was the age of Aquarius. I mean. There is this thing in the human spirit that recognizes that it's at the moments of our greatest crisis that we change. Mm. And we saw this perhaps most poignantly in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still with Keanu Reeves, where the the female lead in the movie is trying to get Keanu Reeves to stop this apocalypse that's going to happen. And it's either her or or the... um, Another character that says, in the moment of our greatest crisis is is when we change. When we have to change. We have no choice. We are being faced with that as a species right now with regard to global warming. We have to change. We have to change the way we live, the way we um, use fossil fuels, the way, um, yeah, we're destroying the environment. Um, But then again, there are these babylonian babylon type elements like monsanto that's creating crops um, uh, that only they can control you know only they have the seed for or they're they're now creating all of these seed uh, these aluminum resistant strains of crops why because they're putting all kinds of aluminum into the atmosphere to reflect back the sun's rays to try and stop global warming, well, aluminum is now a major issue in crops. I mean, Mount Shasta has 600 times the amount of aluminum in its soil than it had, you know, a few decades ago, because we're poison in the atmosphere. But Monsanto, Mm -hmm. being part of this, they're a major corporate mega-giant Babylon-type organization. They're out there trying to control us. Well, yet you have these things. They're there. They're real. You can't deny them. On the other hand, at some point as a species, the people like you and me and the listeners, those who do not have power, are going to say to the powerful, we can no longer go on this way. I mean, we've seen so many revolutions in the 20th century. Walter Wink in his book, Engaging the Powers, has three pages of the success of nonviolent revolutions. We saw Arab Spring, what happened in Egypt, you know. Um, It's an an astonishing thing. The people are finally saying, we've had enough. We know that violence doesn't work. We know we can't take you on with violence. But we're the – we're – we are – the, the um, government, the people are the government. We are it, you know. And um, in America, we used to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now we're a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. We are essentially fascist mm-hmm. in, our, in our governmental policy. I mean, you know this, lobbyists, you know, and the influence they have in and, and Washington and yeah, are we headed toward disaster? Yes, we are. Mm. If mm. we do not change. Mm. If we if we do not repent, we are we are headed for something that is going to be so ugly. It's going to make Hurricane Katrina and the tsunami that that hit Japan and other places look like Christmas. So,
0: do you think that this is a lot of what revelation is all about is is um kind of a laying out of here's the consequences when you live in the city of Babylon, here's the consequences. This is not God's timetable of this is going to happen and this is going to happen in order to usher in the coming of Jesus. But instead, here's the road you're on if you're, if you're going the Babylon way. Here's the road you're on if you're going the New
1: Jerusalem way. Yeah, there are consequences. There are absolutely consequences to our sin and i mean by sin i am you know not talking about our little personal peccadillos i'm talking about our corporate sin you there know the consequences i'd like to
0: quote a great theologian yeah. this time his name's michael harden <laughs> from that chapter <laughs> uh, you said in in that chapter you said it is our hermeneutic or our perspective that is the key to our future and that really stuck out to me because you were saying in that in that same context you were talking about how our actual understanding of the end times mm-hmm governs what will actually happen because when we believe this left behind type of stuff that the earth is reserved for fire anyway and that God's going to, you know, God wants to blow up the whole thing anyway. When we believe that, then we kind of let the earth, I mean, it's like I, I'm surrounded by conservative evangelicals Mm -hmm. and all of them without exception that I know of laugh in the face of global warming. They laugh at it and think it's a joke and think it doesn't sure. exist. And they basically like they'll actually say that oh yeah, global warming's going to happen all right. God's going to burn the whole thing up and be done with it and God's put these fossil fuels in the earth for us to use. And so, you know, God won't let them run out before he gets rid of the whole thing anyway. So let's just, you know, drive our hummers and all this kind of stuff and yeah. and uh, you know, let's Let's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow God'll destroy the earth.
1: Yeah, that's you know. James that's James Watts theology. James Watts was Reagan's secretary of the interior mm-hmm. who said, "Yeah, we're supposed to exploit the planet because Jesus is coming back."
0: Yeah, I mean that's, that that yeah, is encapsulates exactly yeah. the mentality I'm surrounded by on a daily basis.
1: Here, here here's the bottom line. These folks have created for themselves a lie. It's the biggest lie one of the biggest lies in the history of Christianity, and it is this rapture nonsense, they think they're going to escape it. They don't realize they're going to go through it. There is no escape. The only escape is the cross. That is that is the exodus. That is the way out. And so the rapture people um, really do believe they have an out, but they don't. And boy, are they going to be surprised.
0: hmm mm. So when we get right down to it, it's almost like, would you say that there's an immediate pessimism, but an ultimate optimism for the future that, that while, you know, our species might go through a huge uh, event that is going to look, it's going to look like what's described in the book of Revelation, that that can happen because of the choices that we're making, but that ultimately there's There's an optimism in knowing that ultimately Jesus is Lord, and even if we decide to run this world into hell and through hell mm-hmm. that somehow he's going to redeem it
1: oh I absolutely do yeah. absolutely uh, yeah i I don't have a lot of um hope for human culture the way it's going, yeah. um but I believe in a God of hope, a God yeah. who restores a God who renews a God of life um you know the the future when we look at the future we can either look at it as enemy or friend if we have if we only think in terms of death the future will always be enemy mm. but if if death for us is nothing more than a transition then the future's always a friend mm. and the sooner we get that as church the easier it will be for us to lay down our lives for others and that's that will be the salvation of humanity, mm. Um, mm. when Christianity lays its life down for the world. That yeah. that will be yeah you know, the salvation. Which is
0: really which is really the war of the Lamb, right? This is that is the war when, of the Lamb when we decide to enlist in the army for the war of the Lamb. That's right. And we lay down our coercive swords and our yes. coercive weapons yes. and even our coercive arguments. Yes. And we begin to serve others and persuade them rather than to coerce them through love. That's Not persuade right. them with our great arguments, but through a life lived like your wife. Yes. where we where we unconditionally forgive and unconditionally love. Yes, that's how that's how we're going to win the war of the land.
1: Absolutely, that that is the that is my hope for Christianity. That's why I believe that the transformation of Christianity that's just started, it's embryonic, is going to spread like wildfire. I think. Frankly, I think most people are sick and tired of a nasty, retributive, angry God. Yeah. I think humans have finally woken up to the fact that if God is like that, it's better to be an atheist. Yeah, yeah. You know? because at
0: least then you enjoy your life. And... At least,
1: you, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. You know? And there is a transformation occurring, and that's why people listen to podcasts like Beyond the Box, mm. because they're not satisfied with remaining in the tiny little cubicle that they call... Orthodox theology. Yeah, yeah.
0: Speaking of Orthodox theology, you're going to have to help me with, with his name. Is it Andrew Klager?
1: Yeah, Andrew Klager. Klager. Mm-hmm. Klager.
0: He he talks about, and him, is he an Eastern Orthodox priest? Is that No, what
1: is? no, no, no. He has just uh, done some tremendous uh, research in the Eastern Fathers of the early church.
0: Okay. Well, he, he said something that really registered with me when he talks about God's oneness in light of the final judgment. Yes. And this idea that, God's oneness, and this had never hit me, it really goes along with what you're saying in The Jesus Driven Life about uh, about God's nature not being the Janus-faced God, That's but rather right. being completely loving towards enemies, towards friends, the whole thing. He talks about that it, God's oneness really um, helps us to interpret judgment as God's merciful restoration of all right. things. That's right. That God's judgment is all about mercy. So it might be Mercy might be, um, for us, rescuing us from our oppressors, but for the oppressor, it might be rescuing them from their oppression.
1: That's right. It, it's, you know, back, coming back to my story um, in 94, my wife didn't say, oh, what you did doesn't matter. Yeah. She didn't say, what you did really didn't happen. Yeah. She said the truth. What you did hurt me. But I forgive you. Yeah. It's judgment is about God speaking the truth to us about ourselves. Mm. Um, and we are we are an amazing species. We are so capable of deceiving ourselves, mm. um, of, of thinking that we're better than we are or worse than we are. And it's an amazing thing to me. People don't seem to have a, a balanced view of themselves. They either think they're better than they are or they're worse than they are. Mm. Mm. And... Um, the truth is, is that um, we are sinners. We yeah. sin, yeah. and and the truth also is that we are forgiven. We are forgiven sinners, mm. um, and that judgment is not about punishment. Mm. It is about truth. Judgment um, is is about speaking the truth. Again, coming back to be faithful and true. It's their witness. Yeah. It's the testimony of the of the martyrs, those who are witnesses to the truth. We speak truth to power to the powerful, but we don't speak it in rancor or anger or bitterness. Yeah, we we share our feelings. I don't know if you're familiar with nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg stuff. Huh. Yeah, sure. but but Marshall Rosenberg says that you know when we speak truth, it, it, I can say to you, for example, I can say, Ray, you know, you're you're a real jerk. What you did, bah bah, bah hurt me, and I'm I'm really pissed off. I can say all. Of you. Or I can say, Ray, I, I need to tell you um, that when you did such and such, I felt blank, blank blank. I could share my feelings. I'm not blaming you, I'm not accusing you. that's the Satan, the Satan accuses. you did this to me, you meant it boom. no, when we do that, we're functioning very satanically, but when we share our feelings, when I say to you, Ray, you know when you said this to me the other day, I felt you know boom boom boom, I'm sharing my feelings i 'm speaking the truth, but i'm not punishing you yeah and the that's why jay Phelan's essay in this book is also very, very important because Jay is able to show that judgment is real but it's not punishment and this mm. is where the again the in the, the post augustinian Western Christian tradition gets it wrong because judgment equals punishment yeah. there is no perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment that's right that's right there is no punishment and therefore there is no fear there's love love is is my is the the freedom my wife has to say to me michael when you said this this morning at breakfast i felt blank mm. and give gives me a chance to repent yeah you know so, so yeah
0: sharon baker really helped me with that in her stricken by God essay, and then uh-huh. the raising that's helmet, right. That's the right. whole restorative justice idea. And that's because, right. you know, we've been taught that justice has to do with separating the wheat from the chaff, and the yep. Even condemning and rewarding, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. And God's going to condemn this group of people, he's going to reward this group of people. And what I'm realizing more and more, it's kind of like, I think N.T. Wright said it, that justice is about God putting the world to rights. That's it's right. about him making, it's about him Straightening the 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 curves out and bringing the mountains low and the valleys up, so that you don't think of yourself above what you should, like you said, or you don't think of yourself below, but that there's this equality, and that there's this um, this oneness, not only within God's self, but within us and God
1: together. That's right. That there's a oneness. Yeah, we we have got to learn that there's this, there's a fundamental distinction here. Um, the biblical principle, as my wife likes to point out, um, she just pointed out to me just now. She handed me a note. She, gets <laughs> she says, and, and, "And I mean, she's quoting Paul, but you reap what you sow. Hmm. Now, if in this life I'm sowing mercy and grace and forgiveness, that's what I'm going to reap. If I'm sowing bitterness, rancor, passive aggressive behaviors, then I'm I'm going to reap." the consequences of that. If I am sowing uh, discord and hatred and venom, I'm going to reap that. Mm -hmm. If I'm sowing love and mercy, I'm going to reap the fruits of that. So that's fundamentally different than punishment. Punishment is where I don't reap what I sow. So for example, if I'm thinking in terms of medieval atonement theory, and some says, well, you know, we've violated God's commandments. Well, I want to ask you, if I've done things that God said are, are wrong, is it just for God to punish me for an eternity? Right. I mean, is that just? Right. Exactly. You know? I, I mean, I, it was, a, I, okay, so, you know, th- there was a finite number of sins I committed. Does that deserve an eternal punishment?
0: Right. You exactly. Know?
1: Um.
0: Well, even the idea of that—that's something that really hit me was the idea of retribution mm-hmm. is based on the punishment fitting the crime. That's right. So the the whole idea of eternal hell actually undermines retribution itself.
1: It sure does. It sure does. It sure does. Because the punishment doesn't fit the crime, uh, unless you know you use the logic of the fundamentalists or the conservatives who want to <laughs> say you know God is eternal, God, yeah, is, blah blah blah, blah all that nonsense that they do, um. Yeah, well, you know
0: though that wouldn't hold up in any court of law because no, in, in a court of, than that. In a court of law, if we were to if we were to prosecute someone heavier for a murder of a of a Hollywood star than we right. did for the murder of an average Joe, there'd be an outcry.
1: Oh, yeah, well, there would be. You just know? as just as when when they're let off the hook, there's an
0: outcry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah,
1: O.J. You know, Simpson. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, well. This, this is what we've got to, to fundamentally rethink now. And your listeners are probably going, boy, they sure haven't dealt much with the book of the Revelation. Well, actually, we have. <laughs> because we you cannot exegete the book of the Revelation in a podcast. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's again, it's a specific type of literature. It's full of metaphors and allusions. Um, and, and by the way, the book of the Revelation never once quotes the Old Testament. You oh,
0: know? I didn't realize that.
1: But there are over 300 allusions to biblical phraseology from the Old Testament and Jewish pseudepigraphal literature like First Enoch. Hmm. Allusion after allusion after allusion. The author is not trying to say, look, this judgment thing that we find in the 1st Testament, the day of Yahweh kind of thing, I'm not validating that. If he wanted to validate that, he would have quoted it. As it hmm. says, as it is written, but by using this elusive technique wow, what he's doing is he's able, as I said earlier, to subvert this whole thing, and so the reader uh, the, the reader, the listener, would want to be able to go to resources now that reframe this reading of revelation that really challenge. This conservative, evangelical, dispensationalist, Schofield, Dallas Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, fundamentalist nonsense, because it is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. And to recognize that at the end of the day, it's all about the fact that God's news is always good. Yeah, yeah It's good that's right. for us. It's for our benefit. It's who pair who moan. I give my life for you. This is my body given for you. God gave his son for us. God is a God who is on our behalf. He's for us. God is not a God who is against us, who's, 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 who's somehow ultimately going, is out to get us. God is not like, like Freddie, or, or yeah. you know, in uh, Elm Street movies, or Jigsaw in the Saw movies, you know, um, God is not like that. That's right. That that right. God is not like Tim LaHaye says. I, you know, sorry to say this to Brother Tim LaHaye, but he worships an idol, mm. a false. He worships a Babylon idol.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and um, and someday, he's going to come face to face with the living Lord Jesus, who's going to look at him and. And Tim LaHaye's going to say, Lord, I I don't know you. And Jesus is going to say, I don't know you either, brother. (laughs) Come on in. Let's get to know each other now that you're here. Let's sit down
0: and talk. Let's work through some theology here.
1: (laughs) You'll get welcomed in, you know. Let
0: me amplify what I believe is probably going to be a question for a lot of listeners, especially a lot of ones that, that are familiar with with what we're talking about as being that retributive lens on both Revelation and Jesus's apocalyptic.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, I I think about the division within uh, Jesus's parables that seems to be going on. For instance, you have the sheep and the goats in the one yeah, parable, yeah. where you know Jesus says these are the ones who um, you know fed me, clothed me, you know visited yeah. me in prison, etc. You know you're welcomed into eternal reward. These are the ones who didn't. You're cast out into outer darkness. There yep. seems to be this separation going where there is a judgment and reward in, in the language of Jesus. And yet, you and I are coming to the conclusion in Revelation that that's not at all what's going on. How do you reconcile those two things, do you think?
1: couple ways. One, remember, we're dealing with a parable. A parable is not propositional fact. It is a parable. Second, who are those to whom the parable is addressed? The parable is addressed to those who consign others to hell because they don't follow their particular interpretation of God's law, the Torah, in our world today. We have a whole stream of Christianity. It's called a conservative evangelicalism or fundamentalism that says, if you don't do things the way we think you ought to do them, you will burn in hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you know, they, they teach this. So the parable is addressing those who would consign others to help. Mm. And it's it's about this, the way judgment is rendered. And what the parable does is the parable subverts the category of judgment. So... If your category of judgment is, if you don't live the way my church says you ought to live, if you don't wear, a, here in Lancaster County, if you don't wear a hat on your head or a bonnet or a veil or whatever they want to call it, if you don't dress a certain way, you know, if you don't live a certain lifestyle, if you smoke and drink and dance and do all these but if you don't do it the way we do it, you're going to hell. Then mm. you've got this list of rules and regulations that you can measure your own righteousness by. And you can mother others' unrighteousness by. Hmm. Now, when you do that, you're scapegoating others. You're saying, we are the blessed. We are the ones who have it together. God is on our side because we do this and this and this and this and this, and we don't do this and that and that and that and that. We're the blessed. Anybody that isn't like us is going to hell. Jesus Hmm. comes along and says, let me tell you a parable about judgment. This story has to do with sheep and goats. Now, the sheep and the goats are all going to stand before the majesty on high at the end. And God's going to look to the right and he's going to say to the sheep, you know, I was a scapegoat. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me to drink. I was in prison. You visited me. People looked at the hungry, the thirsty, the blind, the poor, the lame, the leper, as those not blessed by God. And he says, you treated others that others would perceive as not blessed by God. You gave them love. You showed them compassion. You showed them mercy. He turns to the goats and he says, you know, all those that you thought were not blessed by me, you didn't treat them um, with love and compassion and mercy. And I got news for you. inasmuch as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Now, both the sheep and the goats say the same exact thing. Lord, we did not see you. But the sheep did and lived in relationship with mercy and compassion. The goats did not. And so Jesus is saying, the standard of judgment you think has to do with all these laws and rules and regulations, in fact, has to do with how you treat each other. And the way you treat each other determines where you're going to end up. And I got news for you. If you treat people the way you're treating people, and you believe that there's a hell, and you think others are going to be there, you're the ones going to be there. Huh. Wow. So wow. it's it's not a propositional doctrinal thing. It's meant to change the way they think about judgment.
0: Yeah, wow. I think that's one of the things that's so hard for us in the West to grasp, mm. is the idea that Jesus' language, and, and just biblical language in general, is not meant to have a one to one correspondence. Yeah. You know, but that it's that that's something that Michael, it's still taking me I, I'm still working through how to understand the Bible because for me it always has been that trying to establish that point A to point B and trying yep. to figure out, you know, okay, here he meant this, here he meant that, and not actually letting it letting it affect me on a heart level, but trying to figure it out in my head.
1: Well yeah but, but both are important I mean you got there's a lot of stuff to be figured out sure um, but but you're exactly right if it
0: I guess what I mean is yeah. it, when I say figured out in my head okay here he means these people
1: right here
0: he, you know what I mean right, like trying right. to get those those correspondences together and I'm realizing that the more I do that sometimes the more I can actually miss yeah. what it actually is he's saying
1: well you'll notice jesus never talks about hell to the sinners to the lepers to the poor poor to the maimed, to those that culture jewish culture had said or the religious authorities anyway had said they're going to hell jesus wow. never talks about hell with them wow he talks about forgiveness and god's mercy and god's love and god's nurturing and god's care he does that he only talks about hell to those who have a doctrine of hell that believe everybody else is going to be there but them
0: that's amazing! Wow, you are so right. I've never caught that, but that is absolutely right.
1: Yeah, wow, that's who he talks about hell to. Wow. I mean, it's not. Yeah, um, that's why you know I don't talk about hell to to folks that 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 don't have a doctrine. hell. I talk about hell to those that do. Wow, because the, it's the it's the group that thinks they're in that that needs to be told no. You're really out. <laughs> That's wow. that's the point of the sheep and the goats parable. Wow.
0: It's not it's not where is hell, how long is hell. It's right. not all that. That's the That seems to be the peripheral things that we miss it with. That's right. It's the fact of what you're, I think you said it best right there, it's that you're out. Yeah. You're outside of the will yeah. of God. You're outside of the kingdom operation, and yeah. you're actually operating in the spirit of Antichrist. That's
1: right. If you believe that so-and-so is going to hell and you're going to heaven, and you're treating them like they're going to hell, well, I don't have to treat them because they're not Christian. They're blah, 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 blah. Then guess what? You'll find out what hell is like. Wow.
0: Fascinating. Michael, fascinating stuff. Golly. Guys, you got to get the book. (laughs) Compassionate Eschatology. For some of you guys that have put ideas submissions on in years past asking about end time stuff, you know, Steve and I have kind of, we've been in this whole deconstruction process for a long time now, and for a long time, we just wouldn't touch revelation for the very reason that you said we knew the conclusions we were coming to about Jesus, and we didn't know what the heck revelation was saying,
1: yeah,
0: and so we weren't about we we weren't about to use revelation to trump what we really knew about Jesus, yeah, so I want to thank you for for putting this book together because it 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 really is amazing. I have got mine highlighted up, underlined, written in, um, I've been, I'm operating with my broken wrist right now. So I sit at the, at lunch and I use my elbow and sit <laughs> here to hold the book down and, and scribble notes in it. So <laughs> sure, sure. amazing book. It anything, is, it is. anything that you, um, you feel like stone we left unturned or something that you want to leave them at the listeners with?
1: Well, I, I would just say this, that, um, the Jesus of the Gospels and the Jesus of the book of the Revelation are the same Jesus. And um, this Jesus is the same as the Father, who is absolute and pure love and light. And um, I would say, if you are a believer in dispensationalist rapture theology, know this. You have been lied to on a grand scale. You have been deceived and you have been led astray, there is very few more pernicious doctrines than that. Mm. And um, if you have the courage to follow Jesus, and you have the courage to listen to the Spirit, um, then have the courage to read the Revelation in the light of the Gospels and not the other way around. Mm. And you'll discover that, in fact, the God who is merciful to you is merciful to all. The God who is compassionate to you who is compassionate to all. As Paul says, God has put all under judgment in order that God might have mercy on everybody. Yeah, yeah.
0: Amen. Michael, thank you so much. This That's is a just pleasure. really met, uh, You know, it's so fun when we do these podcasts. Steve and I, we never realize where we're going. We. You know, when, when I do the, uh, when I do some interviews, I try and have some notes ready. You and I went off script a lot and I'm telling (laughs) you those were the best parts, but I just appreciate you opening your heart, you sharing your own personal experiences, you being willing to let us into your world and, and let us see the examples of love in your own life. And, that really ministers to me, and I think it's going to register with a lot of other people.
1: Well, so thank you. You're welcome, and, and Jesus is awesome. Jesus he, is so, so excellent. He's the most he's so excellent. much better
0: than we've ever made in Michael. Well, than so we think or imagine, yeah. yeah. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to check out Michael's book, Compassionate Eschatology. Make sure to visit preachingpeace.org. And uh, Michael, we'll see you next time. Guys, thanks, have a Ray. great week. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Michael, once again, thank you so much for taking the time, brother. We really appreciate you. Um, Make sure to check out Michael's website. It's preachingpeace.org. Once again, that's preachingpeace.org. He's got a lot of really good articles on there about mimetic theory, um, about understanding Jesus in the light of nonviolence. And I'd encourage you to check out his book, um, the Jesus Driven Life, which is just a really, really great book. That's one that Michael wrote himself. And then also make sure to check out Compassionate Eschatology, which is the book we were talking about today. Uh, Michael co-edited this with Ted Grimsred. Um, it's just a fantastic book. I highly, highly recommend it. Really will open your eyes to see some alternative understandings when it comes to the book of Revelation. I'll tell you the first Three probably three chapters are worth the price of admission alone, just understanding Jesus in the light of um, understanding the Book of Revelation in light of Jesus as the lamb versus the lion that we expect to see. great, great stuff in that book. highly recommend it. Um, also, if you want to join in the conversation, we, we just really appreciate you guys listening. We would love to interact with you on this and we'd love to, you to interact with each other on this topic and on any topic you want to talk about, uh, visit our website, beyond the box You can leave a comment there, interact with others there on this post or any previous post. You can also go to the little idea submission page at the top of the page, click that link. It'll take you to the idea submission page where you can submit an idea for a future podcast. Um, got a lot of good ideas there. We're pretty backlogged, but hopefully we'll get to some of those eventually. Um, also make sure to check us out on Facebook, com slash beyond the box. We have a great, great community of people there that we interact with on a regular basis. It's just a really cool place to, a, a really great community to come join and talk to people about this stuff in an environment where you don't feel like you're going to be judged or like, um, any questions off limits? This is just a really safe place that, that we have where we can interact with each other and really think out loud outside the box without being judged for it. So make sure to check that out. If you want to subscribe to our Twitter feed, that's twitter.com slash podcast. Um, mainly, we use that to notify you when a new episode has become available. And one last way you can get in touch with us is by calling our phone number. It's 626 no 24 box or you can dial 626-246-6269. You can also go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com, our website, and you'll see on the right-hand side of the screen a little widget that says call me. If you click that, put in your name, put in your number, um, and then hit the OK button, it'll actually call you back with our answering service where you can leave a message. You can leave a message for a future podcast if you want to, or, or, excuse me, an idea submission for a future podcast. You can leave a comment on this podcast. Um, we we just appreciate any way you want to, you want to get in touch with us. We just want to hear from you. We want to interact with you and we want you to interact with each other. We really appreciate the community we've developed here. We appreciate you guys. So many of you have just expressed your, expressed your hearts in the last Uh, gosh, couple of months where you're just saying, you know, I'm really coming to understand that God really is a God of love, that God really is a God that I don't need to fear. He's a father that loves me unconditionally and that he wants the best for me. And I tell you that some of the comments that have been rolling in, especially on our Facebook page have just really ministered to my heart. And I know Steve's as well. Um, our heart for this podcast is simply to give voice to what a lot of people are thinking, but a lot of people are afraid to talk about. And just to make this a safe place where you can really discover a God who loves you completely, thoroughly, and unconditionally um, with no apologies, no ifs, ands, buts. We just simply want to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, he is love, and he loves you. So guys, thanks so much for listening. Michael, thank you, brother. We'll talk to every one of you soon. Have a great, great day. Later, guys!